Fuck pain, fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. Cultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Tonight, the Pope has a hilarious slip of the tongue, tasting wine with Bellelli's all-time and Rich's new favorite author, the incredible Tom Robbins, the sweet nectar that is Nutella, the joy of the pull-up bar... Baby pandas get AK-47s, juggling elephants, Dennis Rodman, and the rise and fall of the soul of the American Revolution, Thomas Paine. Hey, if it wasn't eclectic, it wouldn't be us. And now, asking you all to spread the word that corporations are not people, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, Daniele Bulali, the savage philosopher, the middle finger of the gods. Bury your treasure, put your kids to bed, and most importantly, hide your women. The Drunken Taoist Podcast begins now. One thing about having sons, and you know, with the daughter, I don't know if you'll get it quite as intensely, but little fart games that you teach them along the way have a horrible way of coming around. I caught a fart in the eye a couple nights ago. Oh, that just (laughs) just mean. random, just dad's half out on the couch watching The Godfather, no less, when along comes fucking Fredo Jr. to blast a fart Uh, in the eye. Just because it'd been a while since anybody had done that. That's just mean. Yeah, and he was tackled and, 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 you know, appropriately dealt with, but... Still. Where do such ideas come from? Evil, evil. Speaking of farts in the eye, welcome back, everybody. Episode 38 of the Drunken Towels podcast. Today is a Daniele Richimond special. Trapped inside our secret conclave, somewhere hidden inside the uh, Culver City complex, protecting us, because I know Ratzenberg is still chasing us, even if the new Pope is cool. But without further ado... Oh, no, forget the intro. I have to tell you a story that I forgot to bring up in any other segments of this episode that I did want to bring up there and it is. forgot. So consider this the beginning of the episode. That's Daniele Bolelli. The, um, the intro will be weaved as we go but i have to tell you this story so the new pope i hate picking on him because he's a funny guy and i like him but there was this really funny episode that took place not too long ago it won't sound like it thanks to the magic of uh, rich editing it sounds like we're speaking straight but we took actually a few seconds break to actually hear the stuff that i'm gonna tell you from the lips of the pope in a youtube link that we'll put in the episode notes and uh, even after I knew what he was going to say, my earphones fell off and I bent over on the chair laughing my ass off in 15 ways. <laughs> this is too good. The poor Pope, he's not a native speaker of Italian. He speaks pretty good, you know. He's, I think he speaks Spanish as a first language, so he can quickly, you know. And yet there's the occasional problems when you're not a native speaker that can pop up. In this one case, the poor man was trying to say, well, shall we let the Pope speak in a clip? Yes. Let's let him hear the voice and they'll tell you what he's actually saying. Se ognuno di noi non accumula ricchezze soltanto per sé, ma le mette al servizio degli altri, in questo caso, in questo caso, la provvidenza di Dio si rende visibile 
in quanto gesto di solidarietà. So, you may have heard a strange Italian voice telling you some stuff, and what the three words, that the incriminated three words is saying, what he's trying to say is, in questo caso, which means in this case. And he's trying, in this case, God's providence, except he did not say, in questo caso, in this case. He said, in questo cazzo, in questo cazzo, in questo caso le provvidenza di Dio, which literally translated is in this dick, in more typical way, the way you use it is the equivalent of the word fuck in, it, in English. So, you know, che cazzo fai, what the fuck are you doing, che cazzo dici, what the fuck are you saying, that kind of thing. So it's more like you translate it as fuck. So what the Pope just said, and not satisfied with saying it, he actually repeated it Double twice. He just said, in questo cazzo, God's providence. So uh, in this dick or in this fuck, God's providence. And you're like, ah, I was dying thinking about <laughs> the poor man must have felt when they are told, you know what you actually just said right now? And of course, he's all over YouTube and all of that. God, that was funny. That just case. proves God got an excellent sense of humor. Absolutely. If you doubt it at all, make some plans and see how they end up. Precisely. So this was glorious. Now that we've got that out of the way, we yeah. can actually go back to our real introduction. Well, or... Just continue on. This Pope moment has been brought to you by Sure Design T-shirts. <laughs> My God, was, was he influenced? I'm sure he was wearing a Sure Design T-shirt, massaging his nipples, and that's what led to this confusion in his Italian-speaking abilities. In questo caso, in questo caso, le provvidenza di Dio. So, yes, check out Sure Design for some of the greatest T-shirts on the planet. Datsusara for some glorious hemp gear and onnit.com for a whole range of products from workout gear to supplements to my new favorite drug hemp protein of which I'm officially an addict I you know Aubrey gave it to me I didn't try it for a while and when I finally did start trying it I'm now on a daily basis I'm shooting it up in vain no, I'm not shooting it up I'm drinking it's good man in any case Onnit.com, Datsusara, Shore Design. Check out the discount codes in the episode notes if you care for any of their products. Um, Daoist lecture series. By the time this episode will release, it will probably be out. I leave it up to the episode notes to tell you how you can get yours because we haven't figured it out at the time of this recording. I finish recording is about seven hours divided in 16 chapters going from as short as 15 minutes as long as 45 minutes of lecture on various topics related to Taoism. It's gonna be fun, man. I hope you guys like it. And uh, it's priced at nine bucks, but uh, what we'll do is, um, I'm not a evil capitalist sitting in a corner saying, give me my nine bucks or screw you. You don't get it and die. So what will happen probably is if you write me and you tell me, look, I really, 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 really want to hear it, but I have no money. It is one dollar. I send you the freaking lecture series. If you say I have no dollars, I send you the rich, the whole lecture series. If you tell me I have 50 bucks I'd like to give you, I'll send you the lecture series. So, you know, nine dollars is the official version, but, you know, it's I'm never been big on official. So. You want to give more because you have it and you want to donate. You will go as part of donations. You have less, but you really want to hear it. You get it anyway. So don't take it as uh, I have to come up with my nine bucks or, you know, 
you have it, you have it, that's sweet. You don't have it, you don't have it, you get it anyway. So just write me in that case. People who have it can just go ahead, pay and download it in their computer. People who don't, just shoot me an email and I'll email you back with some files and that's where it's at. Having said that, uh, the t-shirts are new t-shirts, glorious ones. They will actually be, I'm gonna put as the picture of for that Illustrator episode notes, I'm gonna put the image of our, the new design for the t-shirts. There's also a page where you can see the different colors in which we offer it. You see the old t-shirts that we still have in stock. The new t-shirt is glory, hallelujah, happiness. It's like, it's what goes on in my brain a lot of the time and uh, awesome Savannah M managed to translate from my brain to paper because I cannot fucking draw worth anything. I, but my imagination is good, except that my hand is not. So luckily we have managed to create a bridge and my <laughs> imagination and their hand work together to craft the craziest t-shirt in the history of the universe. Now, crazy doesn't always mean good. Some of you guys may find it strange and weird in, but as far as craziest, yes, it's up there. So please check it out. See if you like it. And, uh, the uh, among our cast of characters see how many you recognize because there's from happy Nietzsche with the surfboard to uh, Daniel and Isabella riding a tiger with middle finger there's Buddha getting his head chopped off uh, the glory the glorious rich dancing along with naked nymphs and Tom Robbins EQs I mean it's a whole parade of happy characters Duncan uh, EQ good stuff the, Ni- the Dionysian uh, Where's Waldo I think you exactly absolutely so yes do check it out please it's good stuff um, anything else we need to touch on on this intro no time to jump into it beautiful So between the intro and the beginning comes this. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. Episode 38. Still, Danielle is still across the table from me. It's rant time today. And I think this is going to be a special one because I'm like a new devotee. So I don't know how much I can help other than go, damn, this shit is good. Tell the good people. Who, who are you reading? I got this email from you telling me. <sighs> I, I saw in your book that there was a blurb praising... Uh, not 50 Things, but uh, uh, Create Your Own Religion mm-hmm. by Tom Robbins. Yep. Books of which that have been sitting around my house for a long time. Yep. Uh, my wife had um, Even Cowgirls Get the Blues and Another Roadside Attraction, but there's thousands of books in my house, and they just never managed to make it to the top. But that definitely piqued my interest, so I sent a tweet out asking, you know, if you're going to start, where to start? And uh, Woodpecker came back, and how can you ignore a word like that? Still life with Woodpecker. That's genius Inst- title. Instantly dazzled. And, you know, it's probably... Probably been in the early 80s, mm-hmm. kind of set in the early 70s, but just somebody who truly cares about what he's writing. Either that or magic flows out of his head, one yeah. or the other. But every other paragraph has a sentence that is almost worthy of quoting by itself, and yeah. they just get better. And I'm sure I'm missing 50% of the cool lines that they're just not resonating properly or time has passed them by, but... I'm having the best time. I'm only about 20 chapters in, but I can't wait to get through it so I can get to the next one. I'm trying to take it easy because there's not a lot of them. Maybe reward myself with one a year, but um, couldn't be happier and would recommend everybody go out and grab yourself a Tom Robbins book and get to chewing it up. 
Tom is my mind is the best modern American novelist by leaps and bounds. You know, it's like there's no one who writes fiction the way he does, period. And I don't even like, like by like, I mean, I don't even, I'm not sold on the storyline on some of the books. You know, some of the books I love from beginning to end. Some of the books I'm like, yeah, the storyline doesn't really do it for me. I don't get the characters. And I still don't care because the man can write in a way that I would read you know, if you were to tell me about his grocery list and he writes it the way he writes his books, I would read his grocery list back and forward and over and over again. I've never seen a guy with so much attention to language today. Yeah, he loves putting the sentences together, you can tell. Yeah. And it's not somebody that's just churning something out to get the story told. It's a big, epic story and things will blow up. And it's nothing like that at all. It's almost something to be savored and take your time with. And, you know, you, you wouldn't want to blow through this book because I think, you know, not even having finished one, kind of the storyline is almost secondary to the messages he's delivering through the characters. Absolutely. The way he writes is sort of the way you're describing the experience he writes one page a day or something he say if i can get one good page out in one day i'm happy i'm perfectly happy so he's not one of these guys who can churn things out quick because his level of attention to language he'll sit there on one word because it has to sing each word is designed to is not another word is that word that fits in that sentence with that rhythm with that thing it really his level of attention to language is insane which is why it's funny i actually because i know tom and uh you know we have been friendly terms for a long time i've uh, i'd ask him you know he's like man let's do a podcast you would kick ass let's do it you know and tom is funny he's saying uh, i i'm such a cultist for language i thrive on communicating with the perfect pitch that I, it's kind of like, you know the way Jimi Hendrix would feel, he always thought that he was a bad singer. And Hendrix was not a bad singer, he was actually a pretty good singer. Yeah. But when you compare his singing to the way he played guitar, you know, we are the god of guitars and then you are a pretty good singer. Of course your singing looks like it sucks, to him at least. I think Tom feels the way about his speaking. He feels like his writing is so amazing and he's aware of the fact that he can do it right in some crazy magic that to him when he speaks when he gives uh, speeches or he's talking to, he feel like he's so far from the level at which he can communicate by writing but we could bring a thesaurus he, and set it next to him if it would make him feel better i've I mean, tried but he's clearly kind of shy about that well, wait has, till i get uh, done with the book man when i can fully heap praise on yeah just i don't know it's funny you know as you get a little older, oh my God, someone gave me a senior discount. <laughs> I must have been looking really frazzled. Jesus. I was like, good God almighty, oh I shouldn't even admit that. This might be erased. Um, Erase. But uh, <laughs> it's just nice to discover something new that's so awesome. Yeah. No, I mean, Tommy Fett is, I cry that we can't have him on the podcast. Like, I'm sad on one end, but at the same time, he's just... He's Tom. He can do anything he wants, and he's a god. You know, I don't care. He's such a nice guy, too. He's amazing. I mean, he's like, first time when I read uh, Still Life with Woodpecker, the one you're checking out right now, I was 16 years old. And I read it in translation, which clearly loses a lot, because I read it in Italian. And I was like, oh, my. Like, my life literally changed. Because, he, you know, he, the reason why is because in my imagination, 
the figure of the sensitive artist was always a suffering one. You know, was Caravaggio, you know, amazing, powerful, passionate, as in full-on insane and eventually self-destructive, or Nietzsche who goes crazy, or, you know, the vibe would be hurt by Johnny, or rather not by Johnny Cash, because that's not his song, but in his version, you know, with this suffering, brooding artist who feels life so intensely and is ultimately driven crazy by the whole experience. So there was something to me beautiful about this uh, moth and the flame, which is the way kind of the image of it all, this guy with true sheer passion or a la Jim Morrison, you know, some guy who is clearly talented, clearly sensitive, clearly passionate, but the result of all this will be self-destruction because he can even handle all that and he decided to go burn with the flame. I always found something noble, but at the same time, think about it, it's a very self-defeatist ideal. By eventually, you know, your life needs to be screwed over and you need to be this outcast alien out there that can't relate to anybody else and ultimately is, you know, this pure, this idea that true art is born through suffering. Now, there's something to be said about that because clearly suffering, like any intense emotion, will drive you to feel things more, which is what nourish any good art. But it doesn't have to be only through suffering. And that was what I discovered reading Tom Robbins. He was the first guy ever who had this amazing sensibility, who could write like a god and was happy, you know, and could deliver a happy feeling about enjoying life rather than suffering through, heroically suffering through life. He rescued me from this dark approach to life and art that I've seen before, because all the people I like ended up crazy one way or another, or they kill themselves, or they, die, you know, all this stuff. Tom was the first one to tell me, it doesn't have to be that way, man. And, you know, you can be as sensitive as you want and use that sensitivity to create a happy life for yourself. It blew my mind. You know, I was really, just, I read it, I'm like, everything I thought up until this point was bullshit. This is what I'm going for. This is the guy that I'm, you know, if I'm going to get anybody's hint, I'm getting his hint. Because before, you know, I would see the quote-unquote happy people were annoying people I hated and I would never want to live life their way. Right. And the heroes who suffer. And Tom showed me the stupidity of this dichotomy and the fact that you can be sensitive and happy if you learn how to play with it, you know. So the idea that the guy could express this depth of feelings, this beauty, and at the same time apply it in a positive way, I couldn't believe it. So from there on, everything changed for me. It's like he's in on the joke the whole way. Yeah. And the other cool part about the way he approaches his writing is you feel like he's there next to you, reading it off to you almost. It's not sort of, you know, even though he doesn't really present himself as an omnipotent, you know, know-it-all author, uh, you get the sense that he does know where all the pieces are going to land, and he's definitely in on the joke, and um, he's pretty has a good time way, poking fun at everybody. Yeah, the way he writes, sometimes he stops the flow of narration to interject, suddenly his author voice as he's communicating exactly, with the, the reader, alter voice, that's exactly and what then he like. goes back into the story, and then he's like pure mastery of language which i understand why he would feel weird about you know because he's so good that in any other fashion but the um, yeah man so that changed 
really my outlook on everything. Was Woodpecker his first one or is that his breakout? No, or? that was, I think, third or fourth. I think first one was another outside attraction, which is a really good book. Then there was even Cowgirls Got the Blues. Woodpecker was probably the third. And then another one, which is a tie for me with Still Life in terms of how much I like it, one called Jitterbug Perfume, which is genius, absolute and complete. Like, I love that one as well. How was he received um, critically? Well, I mean, most I literary. Can see people who are like, hey, he did this? really well, right? He became this big success. I think even Cowgirls Got the Blues is the one that really hit big. And uh, so he had been able to le- make a living through his writing ever since, which is amazing. Only writing a book every, what, four or five years or something. So good for him, you know. And he, um, so on a public level, he did well. He sold a bunch of copies. Critics clearly are going to have issues with the dude. For one, because he's... The Rule op- breaker. Yeah, he breaks... He writes these long ass sentences. The, his style is so unique. He's uh, he's very much flipping off the literary establishment by flaunting all their conventions. He's not part of that whole political world of people in New York who have dinner together. And he he lives in a fisherman village in Washington State and just outside of all the literary world and just cranks out his novels on his own and that's it. You know, and that sends a trip this summer. Yeah, well, actually, as a matter of fact, my mom is going to visit him in the next two weeks. So she's driving up there. By the time this is released, I think he's going to be either she has been there a week before or something like that. But yeah, she's going to visit soon. Now, for me, in fact, I worship Tom Robbins so much that when, starting when I was 16, that now... 20 plus years later having a Tom Robbins endorsement on the cover of Create Your Own Religion I mean had somebody told me when I was 16 in Italy that I would have been like yeah come on you know not really right it's it's unreal it's like the biggest honor ever that's why I'll cherish that forever you know the fact that I got to have that I'm so thankful to Tom for for that it's just the sweetest thing ever. Well, you are still now new fans for him, so yeah. No, it's <laughs> why not, right? The he also incidentally he's the guy who turned me on to my other idol, EQ. You know, EQ Sojourn, the Zen priest. I was reading this book of his, um, Wild Ducks Flying Backwards. I believe that's the title. Cool title, right there. And Wild Ducks is not fiction. It's a collection of articles and things he had done, interviews and other things that he had done over time. And uh, in one passage, somebody, I think it was in an interview, somebody asked him, you know, if you had a time machine, where would you want to be? Well, you know, where would you want to be? And he said, well, 1300s or 1400s, I can't remember, whatever it is in Japan, uh, um, cruising the brothels and sake shops of Tokyo along with my idols and Master EQ. And I'm like, Wait, I love so much about Zen. I adore Tom Robbins. He's telling me about some Zen master that I don't know about. Let me grab a hold of it quick, you know, let me find out. If EQ is Tom's idol, I think I need to check him out. And that's when I started reading about EQ and I was like, oh my God, you know, EQ is like a character out of the Tom Robbins book. I mean, you cannot believe that the guy is real. He, Tom Robbins made him up in a way. Like, I would believe. Like, and instead, he's a real guy, you know, and that's where... So then I, it's like I can add to the chain, you know. It's not just Tom who has this. EQ has exactly the same thing of being this super sensitive, intense guy and enjoying life to the fullest. And so 
it's the antidote to all the depressive approach to art and all of that that so many people seem to indulge in is this is the opposite of the james morrison suffering artist is the one who can find art and beauty at the same time and um, i love it love it love it you know i cannot uh, and he not by coincidence he's one of the characters in our t-shirt right there's actually um savannah drew him as a satire which is funny because there's a whole in jitterbug perfume he dedicates a lot of uh, one of the main characters is the god pan who's also on the drunken taoist t-shirt dancing around with semi-naked nymphs tom robbins with satire legs there's also somebody else with satire legs in that circle that's me and a manly looking chest i might add yes and you're directly from reality of course and you are right next to tom robbins with the god pan and naked nymphs so your life could be worse and in the same t-shirt just a little bit over there's mr eq sojourn drinking wine that's dripping off the boob of a lady so yes, in case you're wondering, that is the kind of shirt that you want to bring to work to career day and when you... <laughs> it's... Um, yeah, people after our first t-shirts are telling us, can you do, you know, I want to support the podcast, but can you do something that I can actually wear in public before I've been fired? Apparently not. I tried. I swear I tried. I, I think we will eventually get one like that. Not this time around. No. So this is makes our first shirt look tame by comparison. <laughs> I can't wait to see what Rogan said about that. Remember how Hugh got bent out of shape over the first T-shirt? Yeah. I want to see when you show him this one if uh, his brain is gonna blow up. Or Too not. much stuff on there, son. Too much to take in. How am I supposed to? How am I supposed to process all that? that Logan's gotta be quick. Gotta be able to fast. It was great. Look a butterfly. <laughs> that was funny too because when he was telling me all the stuff about the first one, he was cracking up. He was just having fun with me. You know, he was uh, he was playing with things, but. Uh, but yeah, man, so this is part of having the shirt now with Tom Robbins, CQ, the whole parade is brilliant. But um, I'll tell you Tom Robbins' story because it's too good. This is when I met him because uh, I think it was in 2000, um, Tom came to Italy. My dad was organizing this uh, festival where you would have multiple days of music and authors doing presentations. And so from writers to musicians to singers, like performance after performance after performance for like three, four days straight or something. So he managed to cut out part of the budget of this thing for managing to bring Tom from the US. Now, Tom usually doesn't even, you know, he's like to be a recluse he liked to stay out of the limelight and all of that so it took uh, it actually didn't take that much because somehow he really responded well to the way i guess we phrased the letters or i think it was my mom who wrote him first and they clicked they got along real well so tom and his wife came out we got to meet them and he was as good as his novels or better you know he was just hanging out with him the beauty of it is that you feel that everything he writes is how he lives. You know, he, I learn more from just looking at him, just hang out with people, say hello and stuff about life than I've learned in so many other ways. The guy enjoyed his life. He knew how to live, you know, he really knows how to live. You sound like Duncan talking about Ram Dass. I am, you know, I'm totally, <laughs> Which is great. I'm a fanboy all the way, you know, there's just no argument, but so here is the story. We go to lunch and there's Tom, his wife, there's maybe six, seven, eight other people who wanted to hang out. So, so we go and uh, we're at this restaurant 
was about to say it, it's an Italian restaurant. Yeah, we're in Italy, so yes, it's an Italian restaurant. So even if it's a Mexican restaurant, it's technically an Italian restaurant. <laughs> no, I guess they would say it's a Mexican, God, but there aren't any. So no, no, I just yeah. <laughs> There's uh, so we're there, and uh, the guy brings us. Oh, do you guys want some wine? And they're like, sure, we can grab a bottle of wine. And they're like. Oh, which bottle would you like? And, you know, they do this old fancy thing where it's like they're going to bring you the little taste and you can taste it. And based on that, you decide, yes, we got a bottle of this or not. And they're like, so who wants to be the taster? And they're like, ah, let Tom pick it, let Tom pick it. And Tom does this thing and he looks, everybody starts getting intrigued because he looks like the top wine expert in the universe because he spent, he puts on this 10-minute performance <laughs> <laughs> where he starts slowly swishing the liquid in the glass, picking at it through the sunlight, doing all this sniffing it, doing 7,000 tests about the quality of this wine without putting it to his lips before he gets to it, right? Everybody's silent, right? Everybody's just looking at this ritual that's taking place, wondering, oh, wow, what is it? <laughs> I wonder what he's seeing, what he's smelling, what is that's going on here in a total silence. Eventually, whatever much time it was later, which was by now, you know, he was holding us there, everybody like at the edge of the seat, finding out what's up next, you know. He finally put his lips to the wine. He looks around, he goes, Yeah, it's wine. It it really is wine. And we were on the floor, right? Because we were expect <laughs> he didn't know what the fuck he was doing. He was playing with us all along. <laughs> It was beautiful, you know. It was just... Uh, I don't even drink wine. Yeah, it was basically like, I don't fucking know what's going on. And it, it was just like, I was laughing my ass off. It was just too funny. And, uh, and that's all, you know. It's just uh, ability to enjoy life and just be a good human being. Where I've had a really freaking good life and good for him, man. It's like, if anybody deserve it, it's him. That's fantastic. Yeah. I'm oh. not depressed at all. No. We must have missed this ran up. All the power to Tom Robbins, man. He's um, serious shine. Now, having said all that about the fact that Tom is a god, I fully and totally anticipate that some of you guys who may dig our stuff, they decide, I want you want to pick up Tom Robbins, you try it, and it's really not for you. Oh, I'm sure of that. And that's fine. You know, it's like when you talk about artistic things, the thing that I get from it may not be the same way you read it. And it's not because the way you read it is wrong or anything or the way I read it is right. Is There are different taste buds there. You know, Not everybody's going to like the same flavor. And Tom has a very particular flavor, right? I mean, the way he crafts sentences, you either think he's the best writer who has ever lived or you just don't get it and it seems too complicated and trying too hard. I don't get it. It's this long ass sentence with many adjectives and stuff. It comes across as effortless, effortless though. To me? Yeah. Yes. Me as well. But, and that's what was kind of amazing about it. I would love to know what the translation was like because I don't think you could creep too far from the exact words well, without things falling to pieces. I think uh, Still Life, the guy who did an awesome job translating. I think most other Tom Robbins books I've read in Italian translations were awful. And then they wouldn't make any sense I at mean, all. No, they were still good. I would still think they were brilliant, but when you compare it to the original, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe the... In some cases, we flat out mistakes of translation. Sure. We are like, that's really not what he's saying here. 
and other cases where just it's hard to convey the language you know there are jokes that are based purely on the english language that don't work when you translate them and then right. you know i feel bad for the translator but uh but yeah man tom amazing writer amazing human being just all around good guy so get your amazon card out and uh, go get a jitterbug blues Just seven the whole list i would say my personal favorite top spot even still life with woodpecker and jitterbug perfume uh and then really everyone else because i mean another outside attraction is great uh even cargo the blues is great is that the movie they made uh, with the girl with the giant thumbs yeah 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 that's I, what that, i wasn't so crazy about the movie i heard but it just didn't work no it didn't do it for me but the writing is brilliant the um, even some of the latest ones there was uh half infalid's home from hot climates which is like who the hell come up with titles like that but brilliant you know there's quite and even the ones that i'm less fond of there are still passages where i would go for pages and pages where i'm like this is amazing this is 10 amazing pages even though maybe everything else doesn't quite live up to the rest of other books of his in my mind i don't care i still have a tremendous fun reading them well he guarantees me he'll give away the secrets of the moon by the time i get to the end of this one does he i can't remember and I, I think it also said uh what life's like inside a uh, half-smoked pack of camel cigarettes yeah i mean the guy is a the book is a psychedelic trip under one cover you know it's like yeah. though his imagination clearly has encountered psychedelic agents at various points in his life because something normal human beings don't think that way Not mine. Ooh. Isabella's. Well, how do you know? Well, how do I know that it's a dream or Well, you know. This is hearsay. Of course. It is okay, so it's uh I have a hearsay time. <laughs> yes. Isabella was telling me about she was dreaming of uh, you know half of the times kids dream of animals right that's the st- I think it's there it was a statistic they made it like some 80% of dreams kids have uh, up until the age of six or seven are of animals uh, whether they are plushy their own toy animals because that's all they have all day or around or whether they are actual animals but basically they mm, human kids spend a whole of a lot of attention around you know they focus a lot on animals which is not surprising you know, if you ever take a kid anywhere and they see a puppy that's all they look Fuzzy. at and, yeah so there's um back to our you know back in the our primordial dna i guess the connection with animals is strong but um so she was dreaming of uh, an elephant and i'm like okay an elephant is good but the elephant apparently was juggling, was tossing things around and juggling. And what he was tossing around, they were Nutella cans that he was juggling. He was tossing all these boxes of Nutella up in the air and just juggling them all, using his trunk, using his all of it. And then at one point, he managed to open them all in midair. The Nutella started pouring out, and the elephant opened his mouth and downed the entire content of like four carts of Nutella all at once. So we had... Um, elephant juggler nutella consumer was um, part of isabella dream and in the background she told me just in case i was thinking that this was too normal as it was there was a kangaroo wearing a pink skirt dancing around 
Well, that comes with the territory. Of course. Needless to say. So this is about the fear that the, the product placement zombie um, enterprise has finally worked and that they are inserting commercials into children's dreams. Yeah. But you know what? Nutella, I would have no problem with. In fact, one of the saddest things in the universe is not yet being sponsored by Nutella because Nutella is really... I know there are, oddly enough, the world tend to be divided in people who really don't like Nutella and people who think it's the best substance on earth. I clearly fall in the second group. My wife's right there with you. Good God, I could shoot it in vain. I would just be like, just now, shoot it up. That's <laughs> So I can very much I wonder relate. why we're not getting the sponsorship. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Nutella, good enough to shoot in a vein. <laughs> You mean it's not what they would want us to say? I don't know. I just think, you know, first, as with everything else on TV now, you'll see some shit with a car driving on top of a subway, and they say, do not attempt. Right. Yeah. Cars can't fly. Good point. Good point. Don't shoot the Nutella. Well, I guess with that, I'll have to be content with the dreams of Nutella eating uh, elephant juggling guys who um, apparently populate my daughter's dreams. Do you have a favorite thing to put the Nutella on? Is there a, is a best combo? More Nutella? Yeah. You know, I, I like putting Nutella on top of Nutella. I think that's the way to go. No, I've done Nutella on clearly on bread. You know, if you have good bread, that's the way to go. Yeah, yeah. I've done that with cookies, if the cookies are really good. And, and this is really, if you really want to hurt yourself, I mean, this is not, this is for the season pro. You need to have already tried. Do not tried. try at home. Again. No, this is like Kama Sutra of Nutella level 10 because it's <laughs> such a level of perversion that is beyond the ordinary mortals. But around Christmas time when Trader Joe will get panettone, which is, if those of you guys who don't know, is like this Italian kind of not exactly cake is what how would you define consciousness delicious i can't describe it any better than that either cakey wonderfulness i cut it up and i pour nutella on each slice now panettone is already freaking sweet you add nutella to the mix it's probably like seven thousand calories per bite and it's totally worth it there's your nutella bump for the day yeah so don't you shoot it just eat it yeah well, this has been hearsay time. <laughs> hearsay time. And that's, you know, what Martin Luther King was about to say is, I have some hearsay. Have some hearsay I want to deliver to you. It just didn't seem quite as strong. Yeah. They switched it, bastard. Well, as far as I know, the, the subway, const- the, the, the um, submarine construction continues deep in my uh, thought processes at night, too. So You should. Everything should be okay there. I did have a funny one. You know, since we'll do a non-hearsay that I think of, it was all the studios that I worked with in Nashville, but they were deconstructing them all. The, the days were over. I don't know if I was being told that my, my music career had come and gone or what it was, but it was... You know, totally realistic. And all these places that I'd been in when they were putting them together, they're all being torn down. And and carefully, too. Not just knocking it with a wrecking ball, but kind of deconstructing. This is an about job. I actually just remember live as we speak. It's not in my notes. A dream I had last night. Somebody will be not named because they may not like me who I'd worked for at some point. I was dreaming that this person just had some, it wasn't clear whether it was a heart attack or something, but they were clearly semi-dying in front of me and I was the only person there. And I pick up the phone and I guess I'm supposed to call 911, except that I hate this person and I wish for their death multiple times. Well, you can say that. No, I wish for, well, in any case, here is where my dreams give me away because all of a sudden I'm dialing 911 and I'm like, 
Nine five. Oh man, I dialed it wrong. Eight let me try one, again. Yeah. It's, it's slippery and you, oh, eight nine one, one five. Oh man, I, let me dial again. And I woke up. I'm like, man, that was mean. But it's interesting you put it that way because the people that were introduced through these things were, you know, the same crackhead that stole people's cars and you know that you try to keep around, but always disappointed. And yeah, all those folks were there on parade. And you wonder why the place was shutting down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, <sighs> must have been something in the must have been a jitter in the universe. I know, man. We were mean last night. Well, I tell you what, what it probably really has, and I'm becoming more and more convinced of this all the time. And and there's an asteroid a day flying past the planet. That's unknowing. And they're all called near Earth objects. But there's a big one that Sunday our time. Um, they were planning on doing a special where they would put the telescopes on. And it's coming in between, you know, the distance, distance of, the, of the moon and the Earth. So that's in pretty close. Yeah. So these folks have been, you know, preparing all week for it. Well, on Monday, one they discovered on Saturday came shooting by ten times closer than that one. Ooh. And then another one that wasn't discovered till the day before came the very next day. Ooh. All of them way closer than the moon. Don't like it. But... You know, that's why I think with all the insanity that's going on, you think, why doesn't somebody do something about it? I think they might know that the clock's already running. Right. And, right. you know, at least everybody's pretty calm right now. By the way, and I'll swear I'll, we will close this crazy loop in which we're going. Yeah. Somebody showed me the beginning of the movie that won 17 zillion Oscar Gravity. Uh, they showed it to me in 3D scary shit on the planet man it's like this thing of floating in space you look at it did not like that part which is the whole movie it looked amazing it though, was, didn't it? it looks amazing but i was like hiding with pillows on my head and i'm like i don't want to see this this is scary but in any case that's because i'm a wimp on that note i love that movie and movies are just dreams that actually get put on a movie screen you're a poet so that would be the hearsay dream moment of the week. Yes. All sorts of confluttered and fucked up. I love you, baby. That delicious ukulele can only mean one thing. It's time for Isabella's story because we're both learning the hard way that raising daughters is hard. And uh, speaking of which... Isabella seemed to possess the uncanny ability to pick up the most inappropriate lines in any song she ever hears, even if she's listening to it once and it's in the background and is somehow she'll zero in on that one thing and repeat it exactly at the worst possible moment, or the best as it may be if you're purely going for a comedic effect and you don't mind lawsuits, but... Yes. So a few days so ago. So say there was a song. Yeah. And somewhere deep in the background, a backup singer stubbed their toe mid-song with, oh, fucking a fucking fuck. Yeah. But someone thought it was funny and left it in the mix. That would be repeated She's gonna over hear and over and over again. So a few days ago, <laughs> she walked into her um, preschool. And as she walking in, she's in a good mood. So she's singing. And what is she singing? She's singing... Weed is life, weed is reality. Thank you, Snoop. I really appreciate it. The Snoop no longer dog, but Snoop Lion recorded a reggae album. And so she promptly heard that song and weed is life, weed is reality became the thing that she decided to walk into class with among all the other four-year-olds. So what does a hypocritical father do? Hide and run. 
that's usually the answer. That's a good plan, actually. Let the teacher deal with it. Yeah. I was like, I'm just hoping they don't tear. Or the stuff they catch on the streets these days, I tell you what. I know. Can you believe it? <sighs> crazy, crazy. Now, uh, I, however, it's becoming obvious that my influence is it's harder and harder to deny and it's becoming like a few still a few days ago another one of the things that happened is she really wanted to watch ufc she decided she wanted to watch a ufc fight and i'm like we're going to bed and she's about but she's really i don't know she was sweet she convinced me i'm like okay let's watch a ufc fight together <laughs> and she loved I, was, I was picturing a little bit snoozy from a long day and you know, Daddy, please. No, you gotta. You can't watch. You gotta go to bed. Daddy, please, please, please. Like, okay, okay, fine. Okay, I mean, just just one. Who's fighting right now? So we it's watch. Blood Crusher Jones versus <laughs> Spleen Eater uh, Davis. So luckily, it wasn't that bad. It was Damian Meyer against Rory McDonald. It was an okay match, mostly grappling oriented, not that bloody and stuff. And she loved it. <laughs> she was all like commenting with me and being all into it. And if that wasn't weird enough, you know, life with the four-year-old, in between rounds, she engaged me in a detailed comparing and contrast of Bruce Lee's death and Jimi Hendrix's death. She was giving me her opinion about both, about differences and similarities. So when I was thinking about it, I'm like, what am I doing with my four-year-old daughter? I'm watching a UFC fight, which we're commenting in detail as it's happening. And during the breaks, we compare the death of Jimi Hendrix to the death of Bruce Lee. <sighs> where did all that input come from yeah exactly so i was like okay it's gonna be harder and harder and how did her theory go she i mean bruce was more of a mystery yeah no, jimmy just she, choked on his own puke didn't yeah he? She, exactly she was going uh, like but bruce didn't choke on his own puke right i'm like no no he didn't so like so we went back and forth and talking about but it's pretty funny to see a tiny creature go like Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> it's hilarious. But my stories, I must admit, may have um, I started taking note of the stories that I'm telling her when she wants to go to bed. And she heard the same story 60 million times. So I have to make up new ones. Right. That's what she likes the most. So I'm on the latest um, go to bed stories. There was the story of Hercules and the magic fart which was always good. We had the story entitled Thor Goes to Anger Management Classes. Also lots of fun. Is he allowed to bring his hammer? Yeah, that was part of the problem that apparently Thor, um, you know, was very ashamed of the fact the first day because apparently he didn't do good things to his teacher when his teacher was telling him not to be angry. So, but eventually he learned. So there was a silver lining to Thor Goes to Anger Management Classes. If I remember correctly, the story at some point goes that Thor finally opened up, start talking about his feelings, jump into the lap of his teacher and start sucking his thumb while holding on to the hammer just in case. So the hammer's going nowhere. But yes, she was very pleased with that story. Uh, we had uh, a story entitled Tired of Poachers, the Baby Pandas Get the AK-47. Nice. Always good. And I'm um, planning next to tell her a story that will teach her the important lesson of supply and demand called the Bugs Bunny, Al Capone, and Prohibition on Alcohol. So <laughs> with this kind of influences, yes, I can see why she would come up with the stuff she comes up with. Now, last but not least one more tale for the Isabella moment moments I guess because we're rolling with many I made a mistake a month ago to uh, I had to take her to a toy store she wanted this toy so we go in there 
and I make the mistake. She's asking me, what do I like? And I was like, I don't know. And I saw, oh, look, there are cool, those Hobbit figurines. They are nice and stuff. And then eventually she's like, well, get them for you. You know, that way I'm like, I'm not going to spend 20 bucks on Hobbit figurines and stuff. There's a lot of damn dwarves too. Every single day since then, she comes up to me, like she pets me and she's like, I'm really sad that you didn't buy your Hobbit figurines. You deserve them. You should play with them. But I'm like, I'm not going to play with them really. It's like too expensive for it's like, no, no, you're just saying it, but you need it. You know, it's important for you. So I think I may be in the market for Hobbit figurines just because you know, has been every single day for the last month. She brings it up. She really feels bad that I don't have my Hobbit toys, so I may have to fix that. Now, there's no chance that upon arrival at the house that the Hobbit toys, looking sad and lonely themselves, not getting quite the attention that she expected you would give them, might kind of switch ownership a little bit? There's a high likelihood of that, but actually not so high because I think that once they arrive and nobody's watching and there are no cameras, I think I'll be playing with the Hobbits to the point that Isabella will be like, no more, come on. Like, come on, Is let's play with the Hobbit. So now the dwarf is trying to kidnap Barbie and then the elf has to save, you know, there will be some cool stories there. The next thing you know, there's an intervention probably too much with the elves man take him the hobbit oh i don't want to give gimli up <laughs> still yes there you have it guys daughters are difficult but it's the best job you'll ever love well everybody is donned their lava resistant super gloves because we're going to unzip the digital mailbag and see what sort of surprises await us inside zip what's in there aaron ask me about uh working out knowing that i have a daughter that i'm doing seven million things in the universe that i probably don't have a ton of time to do you know go to the gym and lift weights or stuff that's why it's nutella curls now yeah exactly like what do i do as uh, emergency workouts you know things that i can do in next to no time crazy busy life all of that one thing that i dig a lot and again this is clearly not the only thing but one that i particularly love uh, the joy of the pull-up bar that you can just stick on any doorway that's solid enough and it's wide has the right dimension and the whole thing makes me happy man pull-ups are just i love them is uh, i started uh, a few days ago actually i started on twitter by the time it's gonna be uh, out it's gonna be long gone but i started this thing of trying to do for at least two weeks 60 pull-ups a day and doesn't matter how you know the thing the idea being if you are dying and you can do one pull-up, well, you're going to do 60 sets throughout the day at some point. If you can do 10, then you do six uh, sets. If you do 12 each time, then you do, you know, whatever that much is. So, the, um, yeah, that feels great. It's quick. You know, it takes you, what, eight minutes or something at most, and you can spread it throughout the day. So it's more like a work break, like when you're, you're doing too much, your brain is getting like, oh, I need a coffee rather than coffee hit the pull-up bar do that and it will wake you up because you know clearly it gives you that drive of the adrenaline for a second you're like in this intense mode and it gives you another 20 minutes of being awake and focused on whatever you're doing and you're working out at the same time so i dig that a lot now pull-ups clearly are the um, harder on women because of 
you know, it's mostly an upper body thing, upper body strength. So it's definitely harder for women. It's definitely harder for anybody. The ideal for people to do pull-ups is being uh, male and under a certain weight because it doesn't matter how strong you are. Once you pass a certain weight, if you have to lift your own body weight, you know, you can be the a hardcore made nothing but muscle, but if you are 250 pounds and you lift yourself, that's a hell of a lot harder than for somebody with muscle at 150 pounds or something. So clearly not for everybody, and I get that, but the question is for me, and so for me, the pull-up game is a big one. There was one point, I think I mentioned it, I used to do tequila pull-ups. I never mentioned tequila pull-ups, it just doesn't sound like a good idea. Tequila pull-ups were brilliant. When I decided that um, to reward myself, every fi- every 15 pull-ups I would do, I would take a shot of tequila. This was in, uh, I would put Isabella to bed. She would be two years old and I would be writing or doing something else. And throughout the night, I decided oh, I can do pull-ups if I can get 60 through the night. Um, you know, it will show, it will, you'll definitely get some benefits, but... I don't feel like lifting. I don't want to do... How about this? Every 15, you get a shot of tequila. Let's go. So do you ever make it to 60? Yeah, it worked great. It's By the time you got to 60, you're totally happy. And ready for his nap, I would think. Yeah, in fact, usually by that point, it's late at night and you're go to sleep. <laughs> now, we do not recommend alcoholism as a general rule, and I wouldn't do it every day. And right now, actually, I don't do it. I haven't touched alcohol in quite a while, but that's the, yeah, tequila pull-ups were good times. So that was one of, oh, and speaking of which, this is, I guess, a pure sponsor plug, but might as well, since people are asking. Sponsor, sponsor. Yeah, since people are asking, you know, you can, the reality is you can get a good pull-up bar pretty much anywhere, you know, you go to most department stores in their sporting goods session, you have one, you can pick up one for 30 bucks and it's going to give you an awesome workout on it as one for the same price and you guys can get 10% off by using your thing so you want to check theirs it's a good one it works it's and you know if it's it really is not any different from most of the other good pull-up bars out there it's been blessed by micro ninjas exactly no well in this case micro ninjas are the other ones i'm just blessed they just saw it going yes the gods atone it i've said uh, (laughs) But yeah, man, so you guys can check it out on its cell. It is good stuff. And uh, if not, you know, you get it somewhere else as long as it works and it doesn't drop you on your... I've heard of somebody doing pull-ups on, with their, that their door frame collapsed on them and they ended up just back flat on the ground going like <gasps> for five minutes. Yeah, that should not be fun. But No, so that's make, some rickety construction right there. So make sure you have a good door frame. You stick a rebar or that's, two in your house before you... all I can say, yeah. Get that balsa wood construction under you. And if you are a frail lady who's uh, somewhat strong, but not strong enough for hardcore pull-ups, one thing you can do, or again, you're not a frail lady, but you are, you know, seven million pounds, or you have whatever that may be, one thing you can do is do negatives, which is you put a chair under your feet, you climb, you go already to the top position of the pull-ups, and you just go try to slow yourself on the way down. So you're not really lifting yourself, but you're still engaging those muscles by doing negatives. And then you can't really pull yourself back up. That's fine. You put your feet back on the chair. You climb back up that way. And then you slowly let yourself down doing the negative. That still works the muscle. And it starts building the strand that then will allow you to do your first pull-up and then add more to the list down the road. So can't really go wrong with that. Can you still drink the tequila? I'm in favor. Absolutely. Okay. 
half a pull up one shot yes that's perfect <laughs> map the um, now we have dustin asked me about my opinion of somebody who has been in the news a bit mr dennis rodman former chicago bulls former many teams ended up singing happy birthday to the korean as about same president we're, we're really talking dictator really in crazy dictator land now yeah when you end up singing happy birthday to the north korean dictator clearly something may have gone slightly wrong in that department but at the same time i cannot help but love dennis rodman i don't know i don't care how many stupid shit he does in his life i don't care and rodman is the first guy who would probably be willing to admit that not exactly every single decision he has ever made has been the best possible from but the thing is the reason why i like the guy is because you ever seen dennis rodman play when he oh, was yeah. fierce uh, you know, in the bulls days i love the way the guy you know on some level everybody's like oh he's this crazy guy who drinks too much i got tattoos everywhere and that's this and that he's, you didn't want to try to shoot on him exactly the guy played basketball not in the way that a basketball player with that kind of personality would have been all flashy and stuff Dennis Rodman was not the guy who would just dunk the ball in this spectacular thing and then forget about defense, you know, what worries only about the stuff that make him look flashy. The exact opposite. Rodman's game was pure hard work and nothing else. He didn't even care about scoring. He didn't even care about all the things that regular players want because it makes their statistic look good. Dennis Rodman would walk in on the field and he would just use his body as if he would belong to somebody else as he would dive on every loose ball he would put his body out there to take every offensive charge possible he would just jump three different times for a rebound which was crazy because rodman comparatively speaking was not a tall guy compared to most of the other guys who were at the top of the rebounding uh, rankings and yet he dominated the rebounding rankings. The way he explained it, because again, he, he lacked the extra inches of guys who were way taller than him. How did he get so many rebounds then? He said, well, because I was willing to jump four different times at top elevation to catch it. I would tip it, I would tip it, I would tip it until I get it. Most guys would jump once and they were done. You know, and so that's the, the guy played basketball through sheer willpower, desire, just burning passion every step of the way. So the guy then does some stupid shit. Well, I don't care. You know, I can't tell, but he's one of those guys that to me is endearing. He's like, I like the guy no matter what he does because, uh, again, it's there's a lot of heart in the stuff he's done. Now, in many cases, you may add not a lot of brain in some choices. That's fine. I get it, but I don't care. You know, I take that over some brainy annoying little motherfucker any day of the day and i never got the idea that he was passing you know super sensitive secrets off to kim jong-un while he was no, at it anyway of course not and he's damn lucky he didn't get fed to the dogs so. yeah it's like oh did you see that yeah i saw that the what was it, the ankle the uncle. of the yeah the ankle of the north korean dictator who i guess one of the the official reasons that they gave which i thought was I was on the floor laughing. I can understand that maybe laughing your ass off when you're reading about somebody being fed to the dogs and killed that way is not a nice thing to do. But I think it's because it sounds so cartoonish that you don't even see it as real. Yeah. Because one of the things that they stated in the North Korean press regarding why the uncle was executed is because when he would rise to clap for the entrance of the supreme leader, 
he would clap half-heartedly. Well, I see a half-hearted clap there. Well, please call the dogs. Are they hungry? Good. They're extra hungry. Yeah. No, I mean, clearly there was more to the story and there are power plays and the guy was, but still, you know, why did you send your ankle to be eaten by dogs? Is because he was clapping half-heartedly. And I wanted to send a message to everybody else. Yeah, and my dogs were hungry. Isn't everybody hungry in North Korea? Yeah, I think other than... Military. uh, And the top dude who doesn't look like he's lacking food. No. Must be fun to be his girlfriend. Yeah. She's not nervous at all, I'm sure. (laughs) Didn't he already kill one? Because, I don't know. It was the Roman Emperor Caligula, uh, as all good Roman emperors would have a ton of mistresses. And one of his favorite things would be to go hug them, kiss them and stuff, and then pass his finger along the neck and say, along her neck, right, touching her and going like, this beautiful, beautiful neck could get cut if I only give the word at any second. Yeah, a guy, a truly relaxing gentleman that you want to be around. But again, you don't become known as the crazy emperor for no reason, for... So there's that, and um, <laughs> last but not least, a rare female listener, Anna, asks about the writing process. We have regarding, um, how do I go about writing? You know, what's my thing for writing books, for writing anything, and uh, I tend to take notes for months. In many cases, forget months, years. I have files right now in my computer of uh, probably about 15 books I want to write. Each one of them, they can go from just a couple of pages of notes to some files that I have that are maybe 70 pages single-spaced. There's already the book there, basically, right? There's so much written. And what I do is, over time, over a period of years sometimes, uh, anything that comes to mind that has to do with that topic, or maybe I can think of, because uh, this is both fiction and non-fiction, so when I think of a line that a character would be perfect for, when I think of something associated, I open my file, jot it down, take notes, and I add notes for an extremely long time. Now, if that's fiction, even if it's non-fiction, like create your own religion, I spend probably four years taking notes. Just whatever seemed like it would fit in there, I would throw it there. After a while, I started seeing patterns. So I'm like, okay, there are clear different chapters in this. So there's one that's about sex. There's one that's about the afterlife. That's one there's about... So I started opening all these other files within the big one for the book, right? And then every time I would have either I read a book about a topic or there's a cool quote that I can use or there's my own original thought that I can use, I'll add it on to the list of this stuff. And uh, so it's a sort of lengthy process of preparation. I'm one of those guys who like to have structure, who like to, I I really want to focus on what I'm writing, on the style when I'm writing. So I like to have a structure in place so I don't have to wonder where I'm going. I like to have a very clear outline. I don't like to have to think about where I'm going next as I'm writing. I want 110% of my focus on the style, you know. So I work on building the outline ahead of time. And when I have it, and basically all I have to do is just make it flow because all the points are there, all the sequence is there. That's when the hard part comes in because then is where you have to... 
shape it. Yeah, and it has to sing. You know, the same concept with the different languages would be deadly boring. So it's really about finding that right language, the right rhythm, the right pitch for it. One thing I do a lot is uh, put music on when I want to get in a writing mode. The one thing, you ever listen to this piece, um, Adagio by Albinoni? I'm certain I listened to an Adagio. I don't know if that's the exact one. Albinoni is one of the, um, of all the music that I've ever listened to, that's the one that I've spent the greatest amount of time listening when writing. It's perfect for several reasons. Instrumental tend to be better than words because if there's a song with words, I tend to get distracted because I start listening to what they are saying and yeah. I sing along, I do whatever, and it's like then your focus is not on the writing anymore. So words occasionally works. Most of the time, no. I need music that's purely instrumental, and I need music that makes you wanna grab your heart from inside, rip it out, put it on the table, and dip your finger in so that you can write with. You know, it's like it needs to take your soul out it needs to be this extremely like what i'm looking for in something like albinone is put me in this highly emotional state where everything i feel it 10 times more so that at that point when it comes to writing i'm not writing from my brain i'm writing from its whole heart you know it's your all, bloody pumping heart on the table exactly the montezuma guide to writing will be out very shortly by daniel Ubelelli. and sometimes when you get in the zone like that like I would put uh, like Adagio by Albinone and I put it on repeat, I may end up listening to it for like six hours in a row because you're in another space, you know, it's just helping you stay in that space. It's not really that you're listening to every little thing. Well, that's funny. That's kind of the point where who's driving at that point? Are you just funneling what's coming through you or are you actually creating all that? Exactly. That's kind of the muse is taking over at that point. I've heard that songwriting and writing writing yep. over and over again that once you get i think that's what you're always looking for i mean editing it's very funny how you, you mentioned how you kind of collect the ideas doing a documentary when you've got 15 20 different interviews about the same person you begin doing the same thing you go through the interview yep. you find the best bites and then you sort of well they're talking about this here and that here and this here and then you collect them and the next thing you know you've got 10 bytes from nine different people on one subject exactly and the best four rise to the surface and that's how that's knowing how to do a good outline yep. which is key for me i'm always blown away when i read of people who are writing and halfway through writing they change the plot or they don't know what's going to happen next and they are thinking it's too much work for me it's like i don't want to think about it halfway through I want to have it very clear before I've war I've been in a way it's like I've been writing that freaking thing for years before I ever put pen to paper, so to speak, because I don't really use a pen, but in any case, the um, you know, before you actually write. To me is all that stuff is before. The part I already know what the book is gonna look like beforehand. I know the structure of the chapter, I know all the points I'm gonna hit. What I don't know yet is is it gonna sing or not? Does it gonna have a heart? Or is it going to be this dry, boring thing? That's the part where suddenly the music comes on, you put yourself into this crazy, intense emotional state. Now, the reason for the crazy, intense emotional state is that then, regardless of what you're going to write, you're going to write it from a place of intensity. You're going to write it from a place... Otherwise, it would be some intellectual writing that's really only a product of your brain. I don't care for that. There are days when I start writing... And the next day, with a cold mind, I look back, I read it again. I'm like, this is crap. 
and not crap because it is not right. I mean, yeah, those concepts are good concepts, but oh my god, this is dull. You know, it doesn't hit you, it doesn't grab you by the throat. I want writing that is all heart. I want writing that is all passion, that is all intensity. Even when writing nonfiction, even when discussing things that may sound like nerd intellectual subject, like you're discussing about religion and but you know, but it keeps that intensity going. Even I don't know, to me is a key for I need to have the feeling of being uh, as I read it, it needs to captivate me and uh, sometimes it works in weird ways like I don't plan on writing but maybe I watch a movie and the movie catches me emotionally in such a way that by the time I'm done words come out of me like no problem and since I don't have an easy time writing when it when it does flow like that jump on it you know use it right now but um, but yeah I think I'm gonna add uh, using what you're saying I'm gonna add to my ritual I'm gonna start praying to the muse ahead of time Literally, you know, whether the muse is out there or whether it's inside of you or whether doesn't matter is but focusing on please make me worthy of your gifts. Yeah, just open the gateway and let it flow. Yep, that's that's the way to go about it. I bet a lot of people have that in, in their in their various work. If you're making a leather saddle or I mean there's probably anything sort of when you're creating something, there's probably gotta be moments where I think some people do, and those are the people that I'm interested in. Because I've seen a lot of people in every field, right? There's musicians, saddle makers. Not that I've hung out with a lot of saddle makers. Trying to look for something, that's all it came. No, the muse was was denying me at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, I was actually good. And um, I see people who are just machines. You know, they are good at what they do, but there's no soul. It's just, they just crank out stuff they know i put together three words good there now i need to do a shorter sentence now i do a longer one after 17 lines i should switch tone to this you know they have a structure in mind that's and i don't mean structure as outline i mean as the rhythm of the whole thing is is all like a music exec who already has pegged what the next star that they want to launch is and is building in the lab the next Britney Spears you know where there's no it really is a pro it, it's a design that's made by somebody who wants to make money and is thinking is how is it gonna work the best possible way there's no soul and I see a lot of people doing that and I'm like man and they crank out products like there's no tomorrow you know they can write something every three minutes and just boom 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 get it out get it out get it out I'm like Part of me is envious for the simplicity of getting it out, and part of me is disgusted because I feel that you're seriously turning the muse into a hooker, and that's never a good thing. Or robbing people, which is even worse. It's funny you mentioned folks that are actually writing something where they have no idea where it's going. Right. And I guess there's something cavalier to that. You know, we'll find it along the path. Yeah. But you think you would have to have some kind of notion. And I've read more than one of a gigantic writer where it's like, this motherfucker had no idea yep. where this was going. And he'll slap a bullshit ending on it. And you're like, well, 641 pages later. Yep. Come on, bro. Take your time. I know. Think about it. Yep. Instead of one a year, put one out every three years. It is great. And not just slap together a habit, but I don't know, I guess we've learned from writers there's different ways to approach it. Yeah, and I mean, in some cases it's just different and that's fine, there's no problem. And in some cases it's different as in like, ew, you know, that just 
does not look like a good thing. But of course, when it's about the one year, three years, there's if you're doing it for a living, you need to pay the bills. Oh, you no, need to I have know. it out in it's a certain sure. number of months. And that's the, in fact, in some ways, I'm kind of happy that some of the things that I love the most, I'm not doing, st- I mean, they are secondary professions, you know, it's like podcasting, uh, writing, things that it's helpful, it's nice, it makes me a little man, it's a pleasant thing that way, but I couldn't live off it. There's something nice about it because then I really do whatever the hell I want. You know, I don't feel the pressure to do it any other way other than what I want. And it's very liberating. There's something cool about it. Well, what's better than that anyway, man? Yeah. I guess we both sort of just, this is what I like to do. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go do that. Yeah. And if I'm a star of doing it, at least I took the swing. And ideally, the choice is not starve doing no, what it's you not. want. I just, but or, it's always a possibility if you're going to take a chance that it's going to fail. I mean, what we've said a thousand times, it's just, the chance of success without the possibility of failure is always zero. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. And that's why to me is like when I realize that I probably will never have a full-time job in academia, which is something that I thought I would be able to get for a really long time, when it became obvious that it wasn't going to happen, for the first time now, after a while when it became obvious, I'm beginning to take it actually as a good thing in some way, in the sense that I like the notion of, you know, I do enough there in academia to have my bills paid, and I deeply appreciate it, I'm glad, and I have fun with students, and I hate the whole background, academic world, internal politics, the department, all the bureaucratic bullshit that means nothing. But then I like the fact that, you know, that pays me the bills, which then free me to do other things for fun. Now, I would really like to have more time for the things for fun. I would give, I don't know what I would give to be able to have two months in which I can only write. And all I have to do is just God, sit down and write. If you did though, write. aren't you terrified that you know a weekend you'd notice, well, I only wrote two days out of that first week. Yeah, I no, I done, uh, actually when I did the creator on religion, the bulk of it, I've done it that way. You know, I've done all the note taking first. I wrote a couple of chapters during the school year. And then the second summer would begin, I would spend the entire summer writing. And I started cranking out about a chapter every 10 days or so. Wow. And so, you know, in a month, you get three chapters done. I got maybe 75, 80% of the book done over one summer. And then the next summer, I finished the rest and I did revise everything, did the editing. So over a couple of summers, it's where the bulk of the writings took place. And it felt good, man. Having just been able to dedicate myself to that for weeks at a time was awesome. Well, high end academia won't have you. There'll always be room for you to teach summer school at the tribal gathering fest. So I like that. Get some kids caught up in their damn history there. Nice. But on that note, I think we're wrap for zip it up, everybody. There's a couple of you guys, by the way. There's uh, Ravi sent me a message a while back about religious and jesus and wealth and stuff like that i'm gonna get into it but i forgot to take notes on it and i kind of want to have my make sure i don't bullshit your answer so i'll uh, i'll try to tackle it next time uh christina wrote me something about Taoist balance i'm gonna try to tackle it next time so i haven't forgotten but we'll get there That Dazzling Music can only be one thing. It's story time, everybody. Brought to you by your gaggle of mus- magician friends at Sure Design T-Shirts, where they make nipples happy every day. 
indeed. That's something that I would want on my business card. Happy Nippler. <laughs> it's a new word. But um, the guy we play with today is Mr. Thomas Paine, uh, late 1700s. Now, this is a story that's a bit different from what we usually do. Usually there's adventure and wildness and gore or something. Liver Yeah, there's sometimes the blood and gore. Sometimes it's just glorious and inspiring. But there's usually act. There's an action element to a lot of our stories. Thomas Paine, there's limited action. There's a lot of more conceptual stuff. And yet his life is as wild as wild gets. But not wild in the, again, action-oriented aspect. Wild in an intellectual way. And then there's some action, as we'll see. But let's, enough with the preambles, let's just dive right into it. Thomas Paine was a wild guy. I mean, if you look at the story of his life, in some ways, weirder than any fiction. You know, he was friends with some of the, from visionary poets like William Blake to famous political icons like Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, all of that. They say that later in the 1800s, Napoleon slept with... Thomas Paine books under his pillow and uh, read, read them all the time. That was just to make him taller, though. Probably. <laughs> There's uh, Thomas Edison, the inventor, considered Paine one of the greatest minds in human history. Uh, his books rank among the main bestsellers of the 18th century. And yet, at the same time, there were also people who hated his guts. You know, For example, there was... Uh, um, Abraham Lincoln actually wrote a little booklet in which he had praised uh, Thomas Paine, in which he basically defended Thomas Paine's ideas quite a bit, and his friends burned it for fear that if uh, it became known that Lincoln was defending Paine, his reputation would be ruined. You have, you know, Thomas Jefferson was attacked by his political opponents over and over again for his friendship with Thomas Paine. Over a hundred years after Thomas Paine's death, Theodore Roosevelt still called Paine a filthy little atheist. So, I mean, there's a lot of love-hate going on. Why is that? Well, Thomas Paine, the love part, at least in the US, comes from the fact that Paine was born in the UK, moved to the US, and Paine will start penning some of the writings that has, provides the soul of the American Revolution and provides the soul not just of the American Revolution, but in some way of the modern world. He's the first to argue for, um, well, maybe not the first, but he's one of the most eloquent to argue against the old aristocratic system, which today may seem like, well, obvious, but back then, not so obvious when everyone Pretty else... Pretty cutting edge at the moment. Yeah. So he was against the whole idea of monarchy, of aristocracy. He was in favor of a more popular type of government. He was in favor of individual rights and putting limits on government to infringe upon individual rights. He was big on this idea of democracy. He was, you know, pushing concepts that were relatively new at the time and doing so with a fire and a passion that caught the imagination of a lot of people. George Washington used to say that he, you know, he would have his men read the Thomas Paine writings before going into battle to remind them of what they were fighting for. Uh, John Adams had stated that, you know, his, uh, all of uh, the American military victory against the British would have count for nothing if there was not Thomas Paine writing behind to sustain them, that it was more important even than the military. I mean, crazy stuff, crazy compliments in regard to 
that makes you wonder why is Thomas Paine not up on Mount Rushmore, you know, because he's very much set up as a founding father in a lot of ways. He's, he's French. Well, he's, he was actually British, but British. speaking of French, you bring up a good point, by the way, because Thomas Paine not only is sort of this father figure of the American Revolution, but he'll also end up participating in the second major revolution to rock the Western world, which is the French Revolution just a few years later. Right. He travels to France, hangs out there. He's honored with the fact that the, after the revolution is successful, they make him part of the Constitutional Convention that's basically going to the guys who are going to sit down to write the French Constitution after getting rid of the monarchy. So we're basically ushering France into the modern world. All of that, right? So glory, pain, amazing, this, that, and the other. This is where things start tweaking the wrong way for a couple. Well, wrong way, depending on which way you want to look at it. The French Revolution, not everybody was on board with the same ideas. There were different factions that the only thing they had in common is that they hated the king and the aristocracy. But once they had power, where they wanted to take it, they were very, very different notions. Specifically, Robespierre and Saint-Just, some of his cronies, they, they were pushing a sort of pre-communist, but that kind of like revolutionary tyranny, you know, where basically they replaced one totalitarian system with another totalitarian system. It just happened to be uh, based upon, uh, not on aristocracy, but still full-on totalitarianism we're talking about. But we get to be in charge now, so it's cool. Exactly. It's like, I'm not the one who's oppressed anymore, but I'm more than happy to squash everyone else because we need to defend the revolution, which means cut the head off of anybody who doesn't agree with me because I'm the revolution. Ish, you know. Needless to say, a guy like Payne who's so committed to freedom on every level and definitely at the individual level was not going to be a big fan of a guy like Robespierre and this totalitarian nightmare. So Robespierre was not the kind of man to take well to criticism. So he put Thomas Payne on the list of people who said need to have a quick date with the guillotine. So he was arrested sentenced to the guillotine the day they are to execute him they make a mistake and Pocahontas came by <laughs> and save him right wow now the, they are cleaning the cell where Thomas Paine is in so the guy who's going down to grab all the people whose head need to be chopped off doesn't see the mark on his cell that day because the cell door was open didn't pay attention so he grabbed all the other guys have them executed then by the time they realize their mistake and that they need to chop the head off of Thomas Paine a future American president, I believe it was Monroe, if I remember correctly, intervened on his behalf. He was the amb- American ambassador in France and managed to have him released in his custody and so basically save Payne from the guillotine. Payne had gotten crazy sick in the meantime, so he recovers at the house of Monroe. Then he goes back to the US where Thomas Jefferson will have him as his personal guest, all of that. The triumphal return of the founding father, and not exactly, because what had happened while Payne was in France, he wrote a book that was going to really change public perception of him. Had he died in 1792, Payne would have been one of the top idols in American society because he was the proud fighting father. But by 1793, he had published the first edition of The Age of Reason, which was the book in which Thomas Paine just, just tackles organized religion with a passion, 
lazy into it with his usual wit and harshness. Now, the thing that's interesting is that Payne was basically arguing the same thing in The Age of Reason, that he had argued in all the previous books, like Common Sense and other writings, for which people loved him. The difference was, in the previous writings, he was attacking aristocracy, politically, he was attacking the aristocracy and all those systems that restrict freedom on a political level, and everybody thought he was a hero. Well, other than the aristocrats. In the Age of Reason, he was attacking all those institutions that squash freedom from a religious standpoint. And that was a no-no, because the there was still, you know, the church was untouchable in a lot of ways. And the fact is, he didn't exactly just put down one church to promote another. He was like... My own, you know, there's a, here's a line from Thomas Paine. I do not believe in the creed professed by the Jewish church, by the Roman church, by the Greek church, by the Turkish church, by the Protestant church, nor by any church that I know of. My own mind is my own church. All national institutions of churches appear to me no other than human inventions set up to terrify and enslave mankind and monopolize power and profit. You can tell that he was out to make friends. What right? year was that? That was 1793. <sighs> so, yeah, a little radical for the time. Now, the punchline in all of this is that, you know, today the people who love Thomas Paine, who write, who make similar arguments to the ones that Paine make, anti-organized religion, come from a strictly atheist standpoint. That's why Theodore Roosevelt was like, the filthy little atheist, all of that. The punchline is, Payne was not an atheist at all. Payne very much, his argument was, is precisely because I believe in God that I have to reject organized religions because they are attributing to God some petty human characteristics that this is true blasphemy. The fact that these guys would turn God into these petty, mean, stupid characters in their poorly written mythology, that's blasphemy. And so it's an interesting thing because it's not attacking them because you say, oh, bad because I don't believe in any of that. It's like, because I believe in it, this is crap. And wow. this is why it needs to go. And none of that came out while he was still alive? Yeah. No, I mean, he wrote those books and this popularity instantly plummeted, right? By the time he died, I think I remember reading that six people went to his funeral. You know, it was like from absolute hero, he went down... And he did it willingly. You know, he knew that his popularity would take a hit. He wrote it at a time when he expected his head to be cut off by Robespierre any minute now. So he was like, he wasn't doing it to make friends. He wasn't doing it for effect. He was doing it because, hey, this is what I believe. This is what it's about. Wow. So is there a book hiding out there right now that's waiting through the centuries the same way, like civil disobedience, time after time, kept coming to the forefront, even though hundreds of years old? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of these things are, even now, you know, if you read The, the Age of Reason, it's a bit thick in terms of language sure. because clearly stuff, stuff has changed. But some parts are brilliant. You know, some parts are really fun, brilliant. He's witty, he's intense, he's... I mean, the passage I quoted there, that's a cool passage right there. You yeah. know, it's, I'm just wondering if there's something from the 50s hiding out. I'm sure there is. Ten copies in the world exist right now. And, and I'm some, sure some of it will never know. And course. some of it will pop up and it will become a big deal. I find all that incredible and amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, would, I think about the number of guys who did get their head cut off at their own point in history and the amazing masterpiece they were holding in their hands never <laughs> made it through, you know? You know, I read, I, I think I saw it on the internet, so I can't confirm it, but 
they were still using the guillotine in France up till 1976. Yeah, well, I so you could have gone to see Star Wars and then flown across and got your head lopped off. You know, of all the ways to die, I'm thinking not a terrible one. Probably because I mean, in Roman times when execution were supposed to be gory and painful, chopping somebody's head off was being merciful because it was the idea was it's quick. Your nerves get chopped off. You don't feel anything after that. It's done. Uh, as opposed to the many other ways in which you could die that were neither quick nor relatively painless. And were the Romans worse than, uh, let's say, the folks in Munster? Were they no, I mean, competing for horrific ways of killing each other? Yeah, big time. Now, ancient Romans had this thing of uh, what some scholars call snuff plays that they would uh, put in, you know, because the executions sometimes were done in the arena as part of entertainment and sure, stuff. halftime. So while you're having exactly gladiator fight, then we have the lion fighting the bear, then we have this scene, now let's have some execution. But, you know, execution would get boring, so you would spice them up, and you would get, you know, you you take a guy who has been an arsonist in the area of Mount Vesuvius, let's say, you build him up on this scaffold that made to resemble Mount Vesuvius with the little fire flowing down the mountain, and then you have the mountain collapse so that he falls in a cage with lions that they eat him. They would do, you know, all these, they would do this thing where they That's go... It's pretty artistic, man. No, they would do this crazy stuff that are really like plays except that they are deadly ones. It's not like a George Millet early film before you got to the end part with the tigers. They would do uh, Icarus, right? How do you pronounce it? Icarus, yeah. Icarus, right. Close to the sun. They would put this guy with like wings that would manage to fly for a tiny bit before eventually collapsing to his dad. They would do all these nasty, ugly things to a cheering crowd going, whoa, what a good show we got today. Wow. Yeah. Still seems better than Duck Dynasty. Well, if only Duck Dynasty ended the same way. Or are you say is that where you're going? I just, it just sometimes when you just think about it, it's like we we haven't advanced one step. Yeah, but yeah, man. So in any case, the um, yeah, some of this stuff is nuts when you think about it. Thomas Paine, you know, if you want a true historical badass, Thomas, you can do a lot worse than Thomas Paine because. That was a guy who had no problem saying what was on his mind. There's a funny thing that he wrote the first part of The Age of Reason. Then years later, not that much, but I forget, three, four years later, he writes the second part. And he say, in the beginning of the second part, he said, well, people have accused me of having been excessively harsh against Christianity and Judaism and all of this because I did not have a Bible handy when I wrote the, um, the first part, which is true. So I was going by memory a lot, right? Well, now I do have a Bible handy, and I have to admit my mistake. You know, I was way too nice. It's ten times worse than I remember it. I can't believe how much crap there is in there. And he started laying down. And in fact, the second part, it gets a little tedious because, you know, all the good argument is laid in the first part. The second part is him going like a trial lawyer, just proving his point. So going line after line, you know, almost like biblical criticism, picking apart various things, showing how this makes no sense, this is a contradiction, this is this, this is that. So after a while, you know, you get the point and you move on. After but, the 715th. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but yeah, good stuff. And um, again, think about the craziness of the man life, you know, the right there at the beginning of the two revolutions that changed the modern world radically, right there writing the lines that will change political ideas in the Western world in dramatic fashion. 
missing the guillotine by a hair breath, being saved by one U.S. president, ending up as the guest of it. It's like, and then again, from U.S. presidents living in their home to dying with six people at your funeral. You know? well, like, the balls to get out there and actually say what you want to say is one of the things we tend to celebrate. You know? Absolutely. That's an awesome thing. My own mind is my own church. Robbins to the age of reason that's awfully eclectic yes well that's the nature of our business if he wasn't eclectic he wouldn't be us that could be our new tagline yeah well we're here we are at the end again i guess um affiliate sponsors would be first affiliate sponsors yes actually you know let me throw my mom's book uh, she oh, wrote um, this book uh, dakota warriors she self-published it is about um jim waddell's life you guys have heard about Jim Weddell in a previous episode. There, she she just put it together. It's available as an actual book. It's available on Kindle. So those are the current options. Maybe we'll do an audio book down the road. I haven't worked on it yet, but uh, I did a chapter for it. She did the whole Jim story and their interaction and all of it. And then she asked me to write a chapter about the history of the conflict between the United States and the Lakota people for the Black Hills. So I did that, and um, that's part of the book. So I'll put a link in the episode notes if you guys want to check it out. Uh, Amazon link. Anything you ever could possibly buy on Amazon, if you can please go through our link first. That would be extremely sweet. Evan told me that he's going to try to find a way to simplify finding the link because some people who have had the blockers, it doesn't show up and things like that. So hopefully you guys can see the link and use it. Thank you, thank you, thank you for those of you guys who use it on a regular basis. That's extremely sweet. It's a way to sponsor, you know, to help the program going without really having to dish out a single cent more than you would for other than for your regular purchases. So that's sweet. If you guys are in the market for either audiobooks, which actually we say audiobooks, but audible.com has a lot more than just books as magazines, as periodicals, as historical speeches recorded. There's a whole variety of stuff in audio format you can check it out and the link through the duncan taoist is in the episode notes you can click on that and you can try it out for free for i believe is a month and you get the first month free you get at least a book free if you decide you don't like it you cancel it and you don't have to pay a dime you keep your audiobook and you're done on the other front coracao chocolate uh valentine day is passed since a while but Udahal said that you need valentine day to eat chocolate so if you guys gonna check it out please do on uh, through our link and uh, other things let's see um thank you to daisy house music for the always great soundtrack i mentioned that before i'll do one last mention before we make a decision one way or another um our forum on the drunken taoist I've seen it kind of lagging. I've seen people not really jumping on it a whole lot, which is, you know, I don't mind. It's up to you guys. It's really, if you want to use it, you use it. If you don't, you don't. But if for some reason you want us to keep the forum, by all means, write us and let us know. Because otherwise, if people are not going to use it a whole lot, then we may just kill the forum and be done with it. So I'm really not emotionally attached either way. Just let me know what you prefer and I'll be your humble servant and execute your will. Either way is fine. Uh, do, 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 um, 
Kiva time? Hey, Kiva time. Anytime you're not spending on the forum, come on by Kiva.org. Find somebody in need. Drop them 25 bucks and watch the money come back to you over the next 12 to 18 months. Once it comes back to you, it's yours to spend or, even more fun, give away again. So uh, Kiva.org, uh, the team Drunken Towers continues to grow. It's quite impressive how many people have joined in. And I think as folks see it come around, you know, we're getting towards a year on this. Um, it really starts to get fun when you can give the same money back again to somebody else. Sweet, sweet, sweet. I like that. And if I can bug you with one last thing, if you guys are, your typing fingers are happy and you want to write as a review on iTunes, or if you have ever read my books and you want to write as a review on Amazon, create your own religion on the warrior's path, 50 things, any of those, if you can write something up, that would be very, very sweet. Those of you guys who have already done it, I thank you deeply. Those of you guys will do it. Anticipated thanks. And the rest of you guys, you guys have a beautiful day. And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as soon as they come out. You can keep track of Daniel at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at Richimon1. That's R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, the numeral one. See y'all soon. Duncan showed you the way, yeah? Huh? Oh, man, isn't that scary to think? Nice. So don't kill people. Do that instead. <laughs> <laughs> this was great. It's fucking awesome. Get back to work.